Welcome to Whole and Holy. I'm Peter Vogt. I'm the Dean of Bethel Seminary, and it's my privilege to be the host of this podcast. And it's a special privilege for me to introduce my friend, former professor, former colleague, and just wonderful, wonderful Christian man, David Clark. Uh, David Clark is a theologian. He has written a number of books, including uh, To Know and Love God and a book on dialogical apologetics. He has served as a, a pastor. He's been the vice president and dean of Bethel Seminary, and he has served as the Bethel University provost. And I'm sure there's a whole host of other things that uh, David would want you to know, and I probably missed it, but David, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Well, David, I want to jump in and start talking about engaging culture and how how theology matters when, in terms of gauge, engaging culture, and it, it just seems to me that engaging culture is especially fraught at the moment. We hear about culture wars. We hear about cancellations, that sort of thing. And from your perspective, is this a more challenging time in engaging with culture than in other moments of the past, or does it just maybe seem that way because we're in the throes of it right now? Well, how far far back do you want to go, Peter? Um, <laughs> you, you, you know, <laughs> we could go back to the early church, uh, you know, and I think a, a long view is helpful. Uh, the early church obviously found engagement with culture to be very difficult. I mean, it was a period of, you know, at least on and off persecution. Yeah. Um, but then I think of Constantine, you know, who in 312 was converted and a year later provided Christianity with protection and really brought into play something that has come to be known as Christendom, the idea of uh, the church and the state being very closely linked and Christianity having kind of a favored status. And I think the recollection and the memory of a cultural time when the church had a favored status is what makes our time today so difficult. So let, let me just tell a quick story to illustrate that. I was thinking about Franklin Roosevelt and William Churchill, uh, Winston Churchill, back in August of 1941, meeting on warships in Newfoundland, and they hammered out the Atlantic Charter. You know, they were trying to figure out what the world was going to look like after World War II was done. Mm -hmm. And they had this idea that nations should not seek territorial gain, that there should be freedom of the seas, that all the nations of the world should work together to improve the welfare of all people and so forth. And and uh, actually, this vision, you know, did turn out to produce a, a, a period of history of, of great uh, of prosperity and of great uh, peace. I would say, as a sidebar here, that uh, we have a couple of tyrants in our world, uh, leading China and Russia, who are pushing back against this vision. Mm -hmm. But um, what I think was really interesting about the meeting between Roosevelt and Churchill is that at the end of their several days of consultation together, they held a worship service on the deck of the battleship Prince of Wales. This was an English battleship. Mm -hmm. And they sang Onward Christian Soldiers. Mm. And FDR said that this worship service cemented their relationship and mm. is really the thing that led to ultimately success in World War II of defeating Hitler and, you know, 40, uh, 80 years of, of peace and prosperity. But that story illustrates a, a culture where Christianity has an assumed favored status. Mm -hmm. 
Now, if you fast forward today, you know, can we imagine the leaders of the United States and the United Kingdom getting together and singing Onward Christian Soldiers? I mean, today that would be almost ludicrous. Yeah. And I think that illustrates, uh, you know, the challenge that we have in our time. We, we no longer live in a place where the church has this, this favored status. We're kind of in a minority status after 1600 plus years of having favored status. You know? hmm. Yeah. So today we live in Babylon. Yeah. We don't live in Jerusalem anymore, and we're adjusting to that. Yeah, I've I've thought of that in similar terms that uh, we we really have to have an exile model rather than a Christendom model uh, when it comes to how we engage with uh, with culture. And I yeah. think that's what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, David, in your view, what's at stake when we think of engaging with culture? I really think it's this is a gospel issue. Uh, I think if you look through the scripture, you're going to see a missional thread, which is all about God being on mission and you know bringing the world, bringing the nations of the earth to Himself. Mm-hmm. All the way back to Genesis 12, Abrahamic covenant, uh, or I think of Isaiah 42. You know, I am the Lord; I have called you in righteousness. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Mm. And this idea of being a light uh, of the nations, um, you know, is that God is on mission with the gospel and uh, Jesus himself, you know, that tells us that he is the light of the world. So engaging culture to me is really about being the light of God to the world. It's a missional and gospel issue. Mm-hmm. And the framework I like to, th- to, to use to think about that is the, is the mission of God, you know, Missio Dei, mm-hmm. that God is on mission and it requires that we constructively engage all the cultures of the earth, and uh, not just our own culture, but the whole the whole earth, and take our place in fulfilling the mission of God uh, in bringing all people into the lordship of Christ and into the kingdom of God. Hmm. The problem is that you know most of us as Christians are not engaged in the missio dei. Uh, we have not really figured out how in this new exile situation how to be salt of the earth and light of the world. Mm. Um, so I think that's really what's at stake for us. Mm. Yeah. So what are some ways that um, we might think about engaging with culture uh, in terms of, you know, the, the categories that have sometimes been used, you know, talking about Christ in culture, Christ over culture, against culture, that sort of thing. What are, what are some helpful ways of, of thinking about that? And, and what do you think is the most um the most useful way to think about it? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, you know, you're harkening back to that classic by H. Richard Niebuhr, Christ and Culture, uh, where Niebuhr represents five different sort of stances that the church has taken toward the culture. And what I observe is that some of Niebuhr's categories represent uh, stances of alignment, where the broader culture and the church are you know, on the same page, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this would be Christendom, obviously, where the gospel has favored status. And then others represent this more of an oppositional perspective. And that would be where we are today, I would say. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, I think, and important to note that this question of whether the church is in alignment with the broader culture or in opposition to the broader culture is very much a, a culturally specific thing. You know, it depends mm-hmm. on when and where you are. Sure. Um, you didn't mention the fact that I'm actually Japanese by birth. My <laughs> parents were missionaries 
areas in Tokyo, Japan. And so I was born in Tokyo. And obviously in that setting in the 1950s, when I was a baby and, you know, just, just uh, coming into the, into the world here, my parents were in a culture that was very oppositional to the gospel. Whereas mm-hmm. if they had been ministering at that time uh, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, they would have been in a culture which was more in alignment. So this mm-hmm. is, differs from time and place. Sure. But I think among those stances that represent opposition, I see several. One would be the idea that the church needs to pull away from the culture, almost like an Amish mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see problems with that. I think another thing that is really a, a risk to the church today is that some people are advocating that we use really political power to try to reinstate Christendom. Mm-hmm. And I would just say, if you study history, that's going to be a dangerous and counterproductive activity. And so I really think that the church needs to be engaged in the transformation concept, which is using our spiritual influence, uh, you know, to invite people to faith. And from what we're seeing now, the church is still negotiating this new situation after centuries of being in a favored status. We're still trying to figure out how to live in a foreign culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, getting back to the mission of God has to be central in that process. So what does that look like in your in your mind? You know, the, the transformation of culture means engaging with it, as we've been, we've been talking about engaging, so not, not completely pulling away. But um, what does it look like to be transforming culture? I think of someone like, uh, the author Rod Dreher, uh, who wrote the book The Benedict Option, which, you know, consists in some respects of of pulling away, but he makes the point it's not it's not pulling away and not engaging at all, but it's engaging in a different way, moving moving away from the idea of reestablishing Christendom, for example, but uh, but pulling away in order to be a witness. Uh, that so, what would it look like in your view, and and do you have specific response to say the the Benedict option, which I know was a popular, uh, popular book published a few years ago, but um, I think many folks are kind of thinking that that might be a, a helpful way to go. So, what is what does transforming culture look like in in your mind, and um, what are you what are you suggesting in terms of how how much we're engaged with or in in connected to our our broader culture? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I would have some serious reservations about the Benedict Doctrine. I, I do think that the idea of uh, the church gathering together so that the the coals and the fire can keep each other hot, to use an analogy, that's yeah. certainly a great idea. And certainly I think that's part of what the church is all about. Uh, I do think, though, that um, our history has been very much to pull away from the church uh, pull away from the culture. Mm-hmm. You go back a hundred years, there's the fundamentalist movement, which was doing a whole lot of pulling away and not very much of engaging. And it led to a season of weakness and irrelevance. Mm. Um, and so I really think that we have to hold an equal balance, this separating from the world in order to learn and grow and gain strength together and engaging with the world in order to be a godly force for good. And I, I see us doing more of the separating and less of the engaging. Mm. And the engaging that we do is too often uh, seen in light of kind of a battle, you know, a battle mm-hmm. for the church, a battle for America. And so I, I think that that metaphor is counterproductive. 
Um, and I would go in a different direction in terms of how we can engage the world in a more godly and effective manner. Mm. So let's talk about that a little bit more. What what would that look like? What what suggestions do you have for people? Things they might uh, might do if they want to engage with uh, with the culture and engage with the world, but they don't want to be drawn into battle, as you say, and they don't want to um, they don't want to be, in a sense, compromised. Uh, you know, by by not. By, by too much engagement or, or too much assimilation of the thinking of the of the broader culture. So, so what might that look like? You've been a pastor. You've done some of this and and led in that. What what is what might it look like? Yeah, I, I've got several thoughts here, Peter, and I really would like to start with this idea of the culture war, mm -hmm. which um, is in my mind a very counterproductive mentality. Um, if we're going to be salt and light in the world, as Jesus says in Matthew five. Five, it's just not helpful to think about that engagement as a battle. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think too many people are thinking we're battling the liberals. Mm -hmm. um, and what I would say is if you have this mentality that the person you're engaging with is an enemy, then the goal will be to destroy the enemy. That's what war is about. Mm -hmm. And instead, we should not be battling liberals. We should be battling liberal ideas. Mm -hmm. But in so doing, we are battling in a way on behalf of the liberal person. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't win people to Christ if you see them as an enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, we are not called to, to you know, hate our uh, uh, neighbors, but to love our neighbors. In fact, I think Ephesians 6 is great because it says we're not battling with flesh and blood. That is to say, we're not battling with the tools of this world, like the tools of politics, mm -hmm. but we're battling, you know, principalities and powers. Mm. Uh, so I, I really want to encourage people to move away from a war metaphor in terms of how we think about our engagement. Mm. And so secondly, I would say, now this, you mentioned my book, this harkens back to the title, I think we should take a dialogical stance. Mm -hmm. And that means that um, in my engagement with a person who differs with me, I am involved in a dialogue. That is, I, I ask questions, I listen to responses, I might even learn something mm -hmm. in the process. <laughs> but I respect the other's right to, to have a perspective. You mm -hmm. know, uh, Peter, you may remember that I've been in some public debates with uh, atheists. Mm -hmm. And before those debates, we would go out and have a meal together because we're not enemies. Yeah, uh, We're both people whom God loved and created, right? So my stance toward the atheist is not that he's an evil person that I have to destroy. Mm -hmm. My stance toward the atheist is that here's a friend who is loved by God, but he hasn't seen all the evidence yet, and he's a little confused. So my job is to love him and mm -hmm. help him figure out where the gaps in his understanding about God might be. So mm -hmm. the culture war makes the atheist my enemy. And I want to say that atheism is the enemy. The atheist is a person whom God has loved and whom I can dialogue with. Mm. Now, that means, though, and here's kind of a third point, maybe, we got to do our homework. Okay, mm -hmm. Engaging with an atheist and providing them with a better way of thinking about the world means that we have to not only outlove the atheist, but we have to outthink the atheist as well. Mm. And that's challenging because, you know, these things are complicated. Yeah. Um, and I, I think sometimes people revert back to the culture war mentality because having not done much homework, 
they don't know what to say. So mm. all they can do is kind of see the other person as a as an enemy and you know kind of a, approach it that way. Mm-hmm. So I think I was- maybe yeah. In in the church, I think that this is something that we could think about. You know, we focus a great deal on Bible learning, and I agree with that because, you know, there's definitely biblical ignorance out there. But I also think it would be wise to engage in, like, secular people learning. You know, what is it that makes people who disagree with us think? Mm-hmm. What is it that they think? How are they, how are they seeing the world? Um, and, you know, there may be people who are liberal out there who, whom we disagree with, but I'll bet they hold those views not because they want people to live a terrible life, but because they think that that's the way to live a great life. Mm-hmm. And what my job is to help them understand that actually life in Christ is a better way. Mm-hmm. And that means I have to outthink the atheist, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of just defeating them. Yeah. So, and then I kind of wrap this up with the most obvious thing, which is we, we really have to lead with love. Mm-hmm. Um and it's cliche, I know, but it's it's so true. People understand generosity and sacrifice. And when I respect the other person and listen to what they have to say, everybody's blood pressure goes down and we can actually engage in a, in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. But I think people, you know, will soften up and conversations are possible if I mow their lawn after they have surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially yeah. if they have a sign in their yard that says, all are welcome here, you know, which maybe <laughs> I don't agree with that message, but guess what? I still love you. So I think that's, yeah. that's really got to be central to who we are. And if you're thinking of the other person as an enemy, it's going to be hard to love them. Mm. Yeah, that's so important, I think. And and your point about, you know, being dialogical, it strikes me as as such a a crucial aspect of this because even thinking about not just apologetics, but even evangelism and and this sort of thing, it seems so often the mindset is, you know, we gotta, we gotta say our piece. And who wants to be on the receiving end of that? I mean, you want to be heard. You want to be you want to be respected. And we want to extend that to other people as well. And and that's just part of relating to them as people created in God's image and a vital part of it. Yeah. What I observe is that when people are involved in conversations about really deeply meaningful things, okay, they come away from those conversations with uh, a sense of exhilaration, you know, and it's, it's, it's beautiful to be in a conversation uh, with a person that you may not see eye to eye with, but to really engage them in a, in a deep non-judgmental level. Mm-hmm. And the reason why people don't have those kind of conversations is because they're afraid they're the other person is afraid. And I'm afraid too, probably, you know, that this mm-hmm. is going to devolve into a world war three. Mm-hmm. And I send my students out in apologetics class and I, I, I require that they have a dialogue with a person who has a different point of view. And, you know, at first the students are like, I don't know if I can do this, you know? And so my advice then is say, all right, let's, let's do this. How about if we just start by asking some questions and letting the other person carry the ball for a while until you get your feet under you, you know, get and relax a little bit. So if nothing else, you could just ask a question like, um, you know, well, would you share with me your spiritual journey? I'd be curious to know uh, about that. Mm-hmm. Now, in that right there, you are communicating several things. I mean, you're communicating, 
I care about you. I care. I'm interested in your life story. I care about what you have to say. I respect you enough to, you know, put myself on pause for a moment and listen. And it just sends all the right messages, you know, mm. you know. And then once the conversation starts, then it's almost like you can't turn the spigot off at that point. Mm. Um, and honestly, if you think about it, this is exactly what the Bible is telling us to do. I mean, you know, my favorite verse in 1 Peter 3, be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Mm. Do this with gentleness and respect, mm -hmm. keeping a clear conscience. Now, I can't treat you as an enemy and engage with you with gentleness and respect. Mm -hmm. so I think my first sort of starting point on this would be to say, ask some questions and then shut up and listen, you know, <laughs> and let the person share what they have to share. Yeah. And what my students say when they come back is, well, I asked the question and they talked for a while. And then after a bit, the other person said, well, what do you think? Mm. And of course, that's what I was hoping for right along is that he would ask me what I think. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that kind of dialogical relationship opens up the possibility for engagement that isn't about defeating someone else, but it's about really testing ideas and then finding, you know, that the Lord is good, that the biblical ideas are best. Mm -hmm. So, David, when you think about that approach, and I love that approach, I think that's that's just spot on. Um, how can how can churches and pastors and ministry leaders, a lot of our listeners are are pastors, how can they equip people for these kinds of things? Do you have any suggestions about that? About what what at a church level can be done to to kind of prepare people for for this kind of engagement? I would say that this kind of engagement is probably new for some churches and not the sort of thing that, uh, you know, people would, would even think about doing. Uh, so if I were to be one-on-one -on -one with a pastor and this person said, okay, how can I, how can I do this? I would say in your own personal life, start with the conversation that you have and experience it and Talk with a person who's different. And maybe there's a, you know, a mayor in your town or an important person in your community, and you don't know where this person is coming from. Maybe it's a, you know, an activist for GLBT rights or something like that. And take them to coffee and say, listen, I just want to know where you're coming from. And I'm really curious. I wonder if you'd share with me and mm -hmm. ask the questions and open the dialogue. I think that'd be a great place to start. I think. Secondly, that if, um, you know, we were trying to make a cultural shift in the church where this kind of thing became normal, then I think there are some change process uh, activities that you could be engaged with. But I would I would start with, uh, you know, the, the people on my board. I would start with maybe the leaders in my staff, if there's some staff people or some high-level volunteers, uh, and just have conversations about this and and see if we can get a small group that several people are doing it. Mm. And then as far as rolling it out further, you know, I think that the teaching has to have equal parts, um, understanding the contemporary culture, honestly. And that probably means, uh, you know, not listening to either Fox News or MSNBC because they have a definite bias, mm -hmm. right, that they're pushing. So trying to understand culture in a better way from people who are more 
neutral and really trying to explain rather than trying to win votes. Um, and I think also understanding something about apologetics. So why is it that the gospel makes more sense? And how can I explain this without quoting Bible verses? Because mm -hmm. we within the church, we're on board with the Bible, but probably, you know, the activist for gay rights in my community is not going to be impressed if I just quote the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. So how can I explain the gospel in that way? So that's a, that content learning there. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's some process things that one could teach as well in terms of how to have, you know, crucial conversations uh, with with somebody that you disagree with. So I, I would I would think of uh, start with yourself, get a couple others around you, and then recognize the importance of both content and strategy or tactics in terms of having these conversations. Mm -hmm. But I tell you what, if if multiple people in your church have these conversations, um, it's going to be electric. You know, you're mm -hmm. going to see the Holy Spirit do something, and it could be very exciting. I think that's uh, I think that's great, and I think that point you were just making about the the church culture and changing that, establishing that by having multiple people engaged in it is is really important because I think there can be such a tendency to the extent that people are are themselves kind of thinking of it as a battle or a culture war mentality. It can seem like surrender. It can look like well, you just you know you're not willing to fight. And uh, you're not really willing to to do anything, and so to to change that culture and make sure people understand that, and that there's a a critical mass of folks who are thinking the same way on this, uh, can be really helpful for someone who might find themselves feeling under fire because they're not they're not fighting hard enough or you know engaging in the battle. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. And again, we we wrestle not with flesh and blood, mm -hmm. but with principalities and powers. So this is a spiritual exercise and prayer is part of it. And, you know, the dependence on the Holy Spirit has to has to bathe the effort. Mm -hmm. But I think once we assume that we know that this is spiritual and that the engagement we have with the culture around us is not an engagement of me trying to defeat you, but an engagement of relationship and of love and of filling in gaps of understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that really changes uh, the whole mentality, I think, of what we do. One other thing that could happen if once this culture thing gets going is that I've, I've been involved in a variety of places with churches that have done events that uh, allow for this kind of dialogue to be on display. So, mm. for instance, uh, at one church, we did something called Ask Anything Live. And uh, we had I, I was brought on as a ringer and there were a couple of pastors and people texted in their questions, and this was the whole worship service on Sunday morning. They texted in their questions, and we just answered them live. Hmm. And the willingness to actually listen to questions and seek to engage them, you know, it just turned out to be very, very impactful. In fact, funny story, my wife was having her hair done, haircut about two days later, and the person who was cutting her hair said, my, my husband never went to church. Then we heard about this thing called Ask Anything Live, and I invited him to come with me. And he came, and he was blown away hmm. because everybody was willing to listen and to offer ideas, but also to be respectful. Hmm. And, of course, my wife was sort of laughing as she told her hairdresser, yeah, that was my husband. And, <laughs> uh, you know, you, I'm glad it worked out well. So that kind of thing sort of puts on display the concept that 
we have nothing to fear with questions because mm -hmm. Christian truth is true. And the conversations around Christian truth are conversations that are going to lead people away from errors in their thinking into better ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. Now I have to I have to know what I'm talking about in order to help people do that. So this, you know, this requires me to, you know, study hard and learn apologetics and do my exegesis and all the rest. But my goodness, it's so exciting to see a person come to uh, sort of realize, wow, the Christian faith does make sense after all. Mm -hmm. uh, it really is a powerful thing. Mm, yeah. I really resonate with that, David, and the, the idea that we have truth on our side, and that doesn't mean we have to be obnoxious about it, but that gives us confidence that when we engage with people, um, they're not going to somehow prove us wrong <laughs> and uh when when truth is on our side and it doesn't mean we know everything but uh it it does mean that we can have confidence in that and i think that's that's really helpful that's really fantastic and i just uh, reviewed a book uh entitled humble confidence mm. and i think that's the stance yep. so so the, the the humility side here is that i know although i'm working at it and i'm studying and i'm learning and whatnot i know that I'm not foolproof. Uh, I'm not perfect. I'm not uh, totally beyond making a mistake or having a gap in my uh, in my knowledge. In fact, I you know at my advanced age, I forget people's names and so forth. So yeah, my knowledge is not perfect. But it's not my knowledge that's perfect. It's God's truth that's perfect, mm -hmm. and those are different. Right. And actually, in the process of dialogue, you know, I can even I found that I can learn things from atheists that oh, I never thought of that before. I need to do some more thinking about that that particular issue. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's helpful to me as together we're figuring out that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, David, it's hard to fathom, but our time is uh, is coming to a close. Um, as we begin to wrap things up, what what resources might you suggest for our listeners who want to learn more about how to effectively engage with and, and deal with these kind of cultural challenges? You mentioned your your book, Dialogical Apologetics. I'll certainly put that in the show notes, but are there other things that you would strongly recommend that folks check out if they want to learn more about this? Yeah, I, I've got several ideas here. Um, one is by a woman named McLaughlin who responds to a number of very helpful uh, contemporary challenges. Mm. Um, you know, that the kind of thing that a secular person today would raise against uh, against the church. I'd love to put that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. um, there's a book by a James Davidson Hunter, for those who are academically oriented, this goes back 30 years, but uh, it's called Culture Wars. Mm. And it's a sort of a description of that mentality. And I think that would be a good source as well. Um, I also just ran into a book by Andy Stanley, who says, not in it to win it. Mm. Why choosing sides sidelines the church. Mm. And I found this to be a very easy to read book that um, is is warning us about taking that sort of political approach mm. um you know we're supposed to be public servants as we engage our culture we're serving the culture mm -hmm. we're not supposed to be culture warriors mm. and uh, i really believe that if we capture the minds and hearts of americans through love we will win back america mm. but if we try to win back america by using political power we're going to lose both of them 
Mm. So I, I really found that to be a very engaging um, and helpful resource. Mm. Great. Well, we will definitely put those uh, put those things in the show notes. Uh, David, is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with as they think about this topic? Well, that's a that's great. And Peter, let me just say thank you for inviting me to be in conversation with you about this. And I just pray that uh, those who uh, are, are listening in will will find some benefit here. You know, when the church opposes the culture, which is something that hasn't happened for sixteen hundred and fifty years. Um, we are in a new situation. So let's give ourselves, uh, you know, some slack on that mm. and realize that when Jesus said we need to be in the world, but not of the world, that he was giving us wisdom. And I really believe that the church can transform culture through uncommon love and exceptional wisdom. Mm. And that is what it takes. And if we can do that rather than, you know, uh, pulling away or trying to overpower um, I, I believe that uh, our churches, that the gospel can go forth, our churches can thrive and flourish. So that's what I pray for. Well, we I certainly join you in that prayer, David. That's uh, that's wonderful. David, thanks so much for being a part of this episode. It's been great. And I know that our listeners will have benefited from it and, and will, uh, I'm sure, look at the things that uh, you've suggested. Thank you for being a part of this. It's been great to be here. Thank you, Peter. Thank you so much for listening to Whole and Holy. If you have suggestions for future episodes or if you have feedback for us that you'd like to share, please email us at whole-and-holy at bethel.edu. Once again, that's whole-and-holy at bethel.edu. That email will be in the, the show notes as well. But we appreciate your feedback and your support of this podcast. Thank you for listening. God bless you.